Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLA podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law at the Cutting Edge of Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Our guest today is Bennett Capers, a professor at Brooklyn Law School and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Welcome, Professor Capers. Thanks for having me. Technology has been involved in law enforcement since the beginning, whether it was fingerprints or something before fingerprints. What's going on now that's changed things? Quite a bit is going on now. So anybody reading the newspaper, watching TV, will find out about the police using, experimenting with drones, experimenting with Google Glass, using terahertz scanners, uh, using gun detection devices, uh, tapping into big data. I think Mayor Bloomberg of New York City said a few years ago, uh, it's not your mom and pop's police department anymore. But it's interesting, what I find fascinating isn't so much the police use of technology to conduct surveillance of citizens, but tapping into the way citizens can use technology or insist that the police use technology that actually benefits citizens. Why don't we start with one of the more high-profile technologies, and that's body cameras. Here we're talking about police officers who are wearing externally facing cameras as they go about their business. There's a lot to recommend the use of body cameras worn by police officers. The White House has championed the adoption of body cameras. Federal government is helping police departments around the country move to body cameras. Uh, here in New York City is part of the litigation about stop and frisk practices in New York. Judge Shinlin of the Southern District of New York uh, made us one of her uh, conditions that the New York City Police Department experiment with body cameras. And more recently, the New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board has actually asked police to use body cameras actually more often. So when they're executing search warrants, for example, they should use body cameras. There's a lot to recommend them, but they're still very limited. What is the theory? Is it that police officers have such power and such ability to use perhaps discretion or to abuse that power, that by putting them on camera, you can keep an eye on what they're actually doing. Yeah, I think a lot of the rationale behind the use of body cameras is we want more accountability, more transparency. So obviously, it almost seems like this last year, the last couple of years, have been about police accountability. We've had a rash of police killings of citizens, unarmed citizens. I think the last count I heard, 61 black men had been shot by the police in the past year. We recently had the incident in Columbia, South Carolina, where a police officer was sort of caught on tape dragging a student, pulling her from her chair in a classroom and dragging her along the floor. Caught on tape by another student. By another student. So I think it's the combination of people seeing how much can be captured through video and sort of saying, well, has this been going on all along? Obviously, the answer is yes, but now with the power of video, we can actually capture it, document it, and do something about it. It's a way of sort of addressing the imbalance that already exists in the law. Let me use a concrete example. Again, South Carolina and North Charleston, there was recently a police shooting of an individual after a car stop. The police officer's account of what happened was very innocent from his perspective. He was completely justified. The person he stopped was um, about to reach for the officer's gun. That would have been the official story, but for the fact that a passerby happened to witness it and happened to pull out his iPhone or smartphone, whatever it was, and capture it. 
And all of a sudden, you realize that the officer's statement was completely false. The officer was covering up what now appears to be an unjustified shooting. And this was a, a fatal shooting? This was a fatal shooting. I think all around the country, there have been calls for more accountability. And one way to get to that accountability is by having more transparency, which might mean capturing more things with the use of video. Why don't we talk about some of the legal issues implicated by the body cameras? Do the police officers have any right to the content that's on those cameras? It's interesting you ask that. One of the pressing issues right now is that the police control what's captured on body cameras. So there's no obligation to release that information to the public. They can release it whenever they want, if they want. But that's the police department. That's the police department. So there's not really citizen control over the use of police-worn body cameras. There's police department control over the use of police-worn body cameras. And it's one reason why I think we need to go well beyond the use of police-worn body cameras and actually have other types of surveillance. And I know this might sound really scary, but I think, in a way, society might be better off if we had surveillance that wasn't just in the control of the police. Right now in New York City, we have, I think, at least, the last time I checked several years ago, well over 3,000 uh, public surveillance cameras. Those cameras actually have advantages over police-worn body cameras. So police-worn body cameras, by necessity, show the perspective of the police officer. So it's the police officer's point of view. That might be great if the officer is being uh, accused of using excessive force because you see the officer's point of view, why the officer might have thought the use of force would be justified. But that's never the whole picture. So for example, with the recent police takedown of the tennis star James Blake, that was actually a surveillance camera that wasn't a body-worn camera. We'd get a very different perspective, but it was actually a... That was in a store? It was outside of a hotel. And when I say public surveillance cameras, and when I mentioned the number 3,000, those are the 3,000 are the public surveillance cameras, but they're all connected. We all have access to private surveillance cameras as well. So it's sort of the interconnectedness of this new world, this new surveillance, is actually interesting. So if we have multiple cameras sort of watching everybody, there are advantages to that. Clearly, the that privacy is concerns. the argument for, for widespread uh, yes. surveillance, yes. which is if you're, doing, if you're not doing anything wrong, why do you care? And if you're going to be falsely accused, this would be a really great tool to use. Obviously, people, many people uh, may take issue with not wanting to be on camera all the time or have some questions about whether their activity may then become accessible by other people, even if it wasn't illegal. So let's address the first question. Some people don't want to be on camera. You're already on camera. <laughs> uh, that ship has sailed, especially if you live in a large city like New York, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Baltimore. Basically, you go to almost any large city these days, and there are public surveillance cameras. Uh, it's impossible to go to Times Square, for example, without being captured on surveillance video. Right now, we are in Lower Manhattan. It is impossible to walk around Lower Manhattan without being captured on surveillance video. A lot of this was instituted after 9-11, but it's now a fact of life. And you know, obviously, uh, Britain went to uh, CCTV years ago. CCTV, that's closed circuit TV. And in the UK, there are millions of cameras 
that are recording citizens in their day-to-day -day activities. Yes, and those citizens have gotten quite used to them. So you're ready to bring that here. I'm glad you asked that. I am not, I'm not sure that I'm ready, but I think it's, it's well past time that we had that discussion. We really need to sit down and think, what are the advantages, what are the disadvantages? And I think we need to have an honest discussion. Is there evidence that it would reduce crime? I think even in England, people would, will admit that the, the verdict is mixed. But are there other benefits? I think there might be. And largely, I say this because so much of what I care about is ways that we can use technology to protect citizens vis-a-vis -vis the police. The argument that we all do, we all make little infractions. Do we really want to be on camera 24-7 and getting a ticket in the mail every time we walk across the street when the signal was, was read? I don't think there's any danger of everyone getting a ticket across as when they make a minor infraction because the system would fall apart. Uh, so there would be a lot of discretion. So for example, we already have cameras uh, at stoplights. We already have cameras in the street monitoring traffic and we all know that everybody drives just a little bit over the speed limit. We don't issue everybody traffic tickets because it's impractical. But it will capture the more egregious offenses. Uh, which may make us safer. Absolutely. So there the concept. We're creating a permanent record of everything that's done in public. So people will be self-censoring their, their behavior. I think the evidence suggests that people self-censor their behavior initially. And then the cameras really do become invisible, and people really do forget. So even police officers, when they know that there are cameras around, eventually forget that there are cameras around, uh, which is why we've captured some really egregious behavior. Even with body cameras? Even with body cameras. So if the officers are forgetting about the camera technology, is that reducing the impact? Not at all, because we still have the product of the camera technology. We still have the footage, the film, and we can use that to actually make policing better. And policing better could be a whole host of things. Um, I used to talk about bad apples, like getting rid of bad apples, but more and more I'm beginning to think that using that terminology is, is wrong. It's not that we want to get rid of bad apples. I mean, obviously we do, but we also want to figure out why in this batch of apples or have some gone bad. When you're creating this vast database, when you're accumulating thousands and millions of hours of footage, how do you protect that? And who will have access to it? That's one of the million dollar questions, trying to figure that out. You know, there are people way smarter than I am working on that. Obviously, one concern is the security of the information that's collected. How do we ensure that that's protected, that access is only granted to those who need it, uh, that it's not abused? I'm hoping, though, that we're smart enough to figure that out. But you're not advocating that it should be 100% public. I'm advocating that the public needs to have more control and more access through a process, through a process. But I can't go home and say, where is Professor uh, Capers today and, and follow you so, on your walk to work? So it's interesting that you asked that. So one thing they do in Britain with the CCTV is some footage is actually available um, so that people at home can actually watch what's depicted on CCTV cameras. Um, so click what's I, on 14th Street. What's on 14th Street. I don't think we need to go that far. I do think it might be useful for the public to have some access 
to footage. So for example, if I claimed I were, was abused by a police officer after leaving this building, it'd be nice if I could say, well, there's a surveillance camera outside this building, a public surveillance camera. Shouldn't we be able to document, document this? Let me turn the table for a second. We talked about the rights of victims to access the camera technology. How about the police officer? Would the police officer as an individual have a right to that uh, footage to defend him or herself? Probably not as an individual, but the police department, judges. I mean, one thing about the use of surveillance technology is it actually can benefit everybody. So it can show when an officer is crossing the line. It can also show when an officer is engaged in extraordinary acts of kindness, is doing just the right thing, just what we want officers to do. It can rebut false charges made against police officers. It would actually, actually sort of get at the truth. So there you're talking about some of that reinforcement of good behavior. Reinforcement of good as behavior. As well as uh, exposing the bad. Absolutely. And something curious uh, happened. I'm going to make an analogy now. So, and this might be a, 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 not the best analogy, but I still think it's important. So years ago, probably well over a decade ago, there was a push across the country for police officers to record interrogations. People thought when you arrest somebody and you interrogate them, you should record it. And amazingly, perhaps not amazingly, perhaps not surprisingly at all, there was lots of resistance from police departments. But eventually a few police departments embraced the idea of recording interrogations, at least when they are interrogating somebody in connection with a serious crime like a homicide. Although they initially resisted it, I think to date, as far as I know, every police department that has used uh, recorded interrogations now loves it because now their jobs become easier when the case goes to trial. They can show there was nothing nefarious, nothing, no you know, undue pressure going on during the interrogation at all, that the interrogation is perfectly legitimate and the confession is a true confession. What was put into place to ostensibly avoid police abuse has now become a tool used to show the good practice, the good of, practice. of what's going on. Yes, and I think much the same might be true of surveillance cameras. When we're talking about body cameras, maybe we can discuss a little bit of the practical implications. Does the police officer have the ability to turn it on or off at any time? And if so, what are the criteria? So I don't know what the criteria is. The criteria are, is my understanding that some body-worn cameras do have the, uh, do come with the capability of turning them off and off. For example, to use the restroom and, or... And, and obviously that's problematic. That's obviously problematic. I'm, I'm going to stop this individual. Oops, my camera turned off. Yes. So one thing I should stress with respect to body cameras and surveillance cameras is this. So much of the recent focus in the last few years has been about the police engaged in the excessive use of force or the police killing unarmed citizens or killings that don't seem to be justified. But really we should start to think or at least ask, is that the problem or is that just a symptom of a much larger problem? One thing I think we need to ask is, is there a more general problem with policing? Are there inequalities and balances that we need to look at? This brings to, to mind one issue that I know you have been very involved with, which relates to racial profiling. You know, I think when we 
for example, in the last few years, we've been talking about the excessive use of force, uh, police killings. Um, that might not just be the problem. That might be a symptom of a much larger problem. There are other problems with policing. There might be systematic problems, systemic problems, rather, that we need to address. So how do we change the culture of policing? How do we make policing more egalitarian? How do we make policing more race neutral? I think these are the big issues that we shouldn't lose sight of. And the example of racial profiling is a prime example. So here in New York City, um, as many people know, it was documented that over the space of, I think, six years or eight years, 4.4 million stops of those 4.4 million stops, about 84% of those individuals are either black or Hispanic. I think we really need to think about all of policing, all of these problems with policing. So it's, it's usually the day-to-day, on-the-ground police-citizen interactions that almost always are invisible. But those are the interactions that eventually lead to a Michael Brown or an Eric Gardner. So we shouldn't lose track of what's really going on and focus on that. We should focus on that and try to figure out how we can make that better. So I think even their technology can help. There seems to be a different cultural perspective when it comes to the way the public views the police. And perhaps this could be a tool in, in showing that there may be differences in the way the police are treating uh, different groups, whether it's minority groups or... Uh, or white citizens. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think one thing that should be pretty clear is that we tend to want proof. So uh, when somebody says, oh, the police officer discriminated against me, we tend to say, huh, and then move along. I mean, it's hard to credit that without proof. But when we have proof, then we sort of have to deal with it. One thing that's often invisible, going back to the day-to-day on-the-ground interactions between police and citizens has a lot to do with sort of how that interaction plays out. Obviously, there's a concern about privacy. So what is captured? Um, Obviously, the body-worn cameras are turned toward the citizen, not toward the officer. So there's already sort of an invasion there if you want complete privacy. And it could be recording what's going on in your home if the police are in your home, even if you're doing nothing wrong. It could be recording bystanders who have nothing to do with the particular crime that's being investigated, for example. There are other concerns. One that I think deserves more attention is, obviously, for many people, we've already become a surveillance state. But one thing that we don't talk about enough is that that surveillance has never been distributed equally. So some communities Um, or under a lot of surveillance. And sort of the advocating of body-worn cameras just adds to that surveillance. So we may be getting a lot more footage in lower-income or minority communities, which may lead to more convictions, which may lead to more minorities facing jail time. Yes, I don't know if it would lead to more convictions, but it definitely leads to more surveillance. And we're talking about communities that are already under uh, extreme surveillance. So one thing that's interesting about the use of going back to public surveillance cameras, there seem to be a lot of cameras in two types of places. Dense areas like Times Square or Lower Manhattan, where there's lots of sort of industry, tourist, uh, potential sort of terrorist targets. And the other place where we see a lot of cameras 
public housing. Public housing, but the the argument there is that these are areas that have seen high levels of crime. Absolutely, which is why we need to have this conversation, because you go in those communities and have a conversation, and there's actually disagreement about the use of cameras. Do we need more cameras or fewer cameras? And if we're having cameras, shouldn't everybody have cameras? Another argument is cost. How expensive is this? Is this prohibitively expensive? It's something that police officers or municipalities that have limited budgets should consider worth their while. I, I, I can't give you a complete answer about the cost, but I can make a comparison because we obviously know how much it's costing to incarcerate people. And clearly one of the other major things we have to always keep in the back of our minds is mass incarceration. So as we work to reduce mass incarceration, obviously there are gonna be savings there. We should really think about how we're spending our money. I mean, why are we spending it on prisons where we can be spending it on other things? Why don't we transition into another technology, one that's even more revolutionary to many of us, and that's facial recognition technology. So facial recognition technology, in a nutshell, Imagine surveillance cameras at a football stadium, and you don't see the cameras are basically hidden in the little whatever wires they have above the stadium, but literally uh, we have the technology where those cameras scanning an entire crowd of thousands of people can single out a particular face and identify that face. One criticism that's been made by some scholars is that when we use this technology, we get a number of false positives those individuals then find themselves under police scrutiny. Yes, and the alternative would be that we simply stop way too many people. So in New York, we would continue to stop millions of people uh, rather than stopping far fewer. Sure, there might be mistakes, but it seems to me the question we should be asking is not uh, when should we abandon facial recognition technology because it's imperfect. The question should be how do we perfect it? How do we make it better? How do we get rid of the errors? All right, so for those of you who are listening for MCLE credit, the code for today's course is 637940. So pause here or rewind. The code is 637940. Back to the interview. Talking about making it better, another highly controversial issue, where are the police allowed to bring in their data? Is it only from mug shots or arrests or can they cross-reference, for example, body cameras or publicly available internet images like Facebook? Either now or in the near future, police will have access to everything. They can uh, cross-reference everything. Everything will be known. So they'll be able to see who you are and identify who you are, even if you've never committed a crime in your life. Absolutely. So let me give you a concrete example, and it's an example I occasionally like using. Back in 1968, the Supreme Court decided a case called Terry v. Ohio. And it's the case that basically gave the police authority under the Fourth Amendment to stop people without first having probable cause. The so-called Terry stop. The so-called Terry stop. As long as an officer has reasonable suspicion that criminal activity might be afoot, an officer can stop that individual and ask questions. And if the officer separate and apart from that also suspects or has reasonable suspicion that the individual might be armed and dangerous, the officer can also frisk that individual. So just going back to New York briefly, 4.4 million stops, uh, only about half of those also included frisk. What I like about the Terry case, uh, several things I like about the Terry case, it all started 
with uh, a detective on the beat, Detective McFadden, who observed two men who seemed to be pacing in front of a store in downtown Cleveland. Uh, one of them would glance in the store, walk away, confer with the other. The other would come to the store, glance in the window, leave. The two would confer. At one point, they conferred with a third guy. And Detective McFadden watched them for approximately five minutes before thinking that, well, before concluding that these guys might be casing the place to rob it. So Detective McFadden uh, confronted the men, stopped them, patted them down, and hence the case Terry v. Ohio, where the Supreme Court said everything Terry, Detective McFadden did was fine under the Fourth Amendment because we were creating this sort of middle category of reasonable suspicion. The detective found a gun. Detective did find a gun. What's interesting is when we think how things would be even easier with the use of technology. So if we had the same facts today, Detective McFadden would, again, from across the street, just observing the two guys uh, with uh, facial recognition technology, with uh, access to big data, with terahertz scanners, which I haven't even man uh, mentioned, Detective McFadden would know from afar, within seconds, that Terry and his associate, uh, I think one had a substance abuse problem, uh, one had connections, speaking about your connections to other people, was a known associate of a known criminal, and there were several other things. Uh, I could dig it up out of my, with the officer, Detective McFadden, would have increased, basically, or confirmed his suspicions. In fact, with terahertz scanners, which I haven't talked about, officers can tell from a distance whether somebody has a firearm. So with that, Detective McFadden would have known everything. So in that way, technology actually helps get the right people. So but this is how I want to flip it, because Terry and his companion also could have been me and my best friend. So I'm African-American, obviously. My best friend is African-American. And we love to window shop. We love to window shop. But if my best friend and I were window shopping and literally taking turns looking into a store window, in this day and age, a detective armed with the same technology would know using the terahertz scanner that neither one of us has a weapon. The officer would know from facial recognition, recognition technology that, in fact, my name is Bennett Capers and I'm a professor who teaches criminal procedure. They would evidence. stay away from you at all costs. The, the, the detective would find out I'm a former federal prosecutor <laughs> and that I'm on the Civilian Complaint Review Board and that I was appointed chairman of the academic committee in connection with the Floyd decision. So yes, the officer would sort of know like, oh, there's no reason to stop these two guys. We had sort of those technologies in place in New York um, my argument is it would reduce stops and frisk in general. So not just reduce racial profile, but just reduce the numbers. 4.4 million, even if it was 4.4 million you know, non-people of color, that's still way too many people. So would it lead to more accurate policing and more egalitarian policing? Let me play devil's advocate sure. and say, I can see how that would benefit a large number of people, for example, you. But let's use an example of an individual who might have grown up in a, in a poor neighborhood, mm -hmm. who may have had some tangles with the law growing up as a child, and certainly if, if he or she grew up in a, a neighborhood where there was a lot of crime, would know people who were involved in crime, they may then be targeted just based on where they're from, even though they also could be window shopping. 
So Joel, my response is, what's the alternative? My response is, that's exactly what's already happening now. It certainly can't get worse. So we have to ask, is it possible technology can make things better? Right now, you know, and I sort of hate to say this, but the way that uh, many NYPD officers police, so the way many officers across the country police, is they police with those in place of biases, those assumptions. So they basically assume that, based on somebody's, the color of their skin, that they might be a criminal. So if, if we already have that assumption, wouldn't it be better to have technology that counters that? You mentioned the terahertz scanner. This is a technology that allows police to gain information from, from a long distance. So the concept is essentially, I think the last time I checked, it might be a distance of 40 feet or 40 yards. An officer, simply by pointing something, could be as innocuous as a camera, can tell whether an individual has a firearm or not. So it's almost like a, a long distance metal detector, but a long distance firearm detector. And there's a lot of power that police have when it comes to their own safety. So if they suspect that someone may be carrying a firearm, the ability for them to use force is certainly on the table. With a scanner like this, they could get that answer in a more safe way. Yes, they, they would realize that the kid with the bulge in his pocket, pocket has just a big old-fashioned cell phone and not a gun. So it could actually save lives. How about a privacy issue there? Are there any concerns as to whether or not the police have the right to use that? I don't think there are any privacy issues, and there should not be any Fourth Amendment issues. So it's really just an issue of what do we want as a society? What are we willing to tolerate? The new big technology on the horizon is something called automated suspicion algorithms. Um, and some people refer to it as machine learning. It's basically computers operating pretty much independently. So computers would basically do all the monitoring and send off the alerts, and the computers would learn as they go. So already this is in place for bags, for example. So cameras are sensitive enough where they actually learn to spot bags that might actually have explosives in them. So if there's a bag left behind, it may not need a human eye Correct. to trigger the system. Yes. The computer will send an alert to the police department. One technology that may tie all these together or certainly strengthen the individual powers of the other technologies is big data. When we're talking about big data and policing, what do we mean? We're talking about the police having access to everything, everything, everything that could possibly exist out there on the internet, on the web, anything that's publicly accessible, all of that exists. And so your history, biological identifiers, known associates, activity, job, debt. Yes. But one description I heard is if we converted the data we have now into books, they would cover the earth 54 books deep. So if the police wanted to quickly access and know exactly your name, your age, browsing history, Facebook page, your tweets, all of that could be accessed by, accessed by the police. Or they maybe you could see what online shopping I've done, and yes. if I'm more prone to a certain store and something was stolen from that store, then maybe I could be yes. identified for this. If you've been stocking up on things that can be used to make crystal meth, they would know that. I have watched all, every episode of Breaking Bad, so I, I think I do know the ingredients. Well, don't ruin it for me, because I have one 
final episode to watch, <laughs> which, which I've been postponing for almost a year because I like the idea of like it hasn't ended yet. We've talked about discrimination. Yes. How about when big data might play into reverse discrimination or let me rephrase that when it might play into beneficial treatment for certain individuals. I can imagine as a law professor and certainly as a criminal procedure professor, if someone brings up your file and you're speeding 10 miles over the speed limit, they may wait for the next guy who's speeding to pull you over. Mm -hmm. So I think these are all questions that we have to explore and figure out. All I'm saying today is let's not be afraid of that. Let's not be afraid of technology and let's not be afraid of sort of asking what can technology do for us. And I'm, I'm sort of switching sort of the original question. It's not what technology can do for the police. It's what can technology do for the rest of us citizens? How do we tap into that and how do we make everything better for us? Basically, what I've been advocating is sort of switching the question. It's not just about using technology that benefits the police. It's about sort of using technology and thinking of new technologies that benefit citizens, all of us, to make everything better. And again, that includes safety. That includes everything. As the technology advances, the balancing act between privacy and safety will be something that we'll continue to watch. Thank you for highlighting these issues. Thanks for having me. And thank you for watching Talks on Law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.